when I started to see the benefits that were coming from that, I started to think, okay, like this is the path I'm meant to go down. And so that was when, when I really started exploring, as you said, being more of an educator and an inspiration to others in the field of well-being advocacy and understanding. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPaws Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. Calling all veterinary professionals. Are you in need of a mental health day? Pet Desk, your clinic's client engagement solution can do you one better. In honor of Mental Health Month, Pet Desk is giving away a $2,000 getaway prize and vacation home rental and airfare to three lucky veterinary winners. Whether you've been meaning to take the team off-site for some bonding or just want to relax, the choice is yours. Go to petdesk.com forward slash getaway and enter to win and read the terms and conditions. The deadline to enter is May 31st, 2023. Hello again, Positive Leadership listeners. We are super, super, super excited to be back here again with another amazing guest. We have Dr. Marie Holloway-Chuck. She is a veterinary mental health and well-being advocate, speaker, consultant, and criticalist. She is a doctor of veterinary medicine. She is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care, which gives her the criticalist title. And she's also a yoga teacher. I actually have known Dr. Marie essentially kind of one off for many, many, many years uh, being involved in the critical care community and have seen her, I don't want to say pivot maybe, but kind of partner into well-being and mental health. So Dr. Marie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, I'm just delighted to be here. Thank you so much for coming. So we do not like to read stuffy bios on the Positive Leadership Podcast. So without having to go do that, could you tell us and the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and honestly, if you'd focus on the transition from hardcore ICU critical care to what you do today? Yeah, I would love to. And I'll, I'll try to make it as, as least stuffy as I possibly can. So I, um, I was born here in Canada and raised actually by two veterinarians. And so it was no surprise that I decided to go into vet school, decided at a pretty young age, applied as soon as I could to get all my you know prereqs done and went to vet school in Saskatoon. And after that, I applied for an internship program. And I did that at Washington State University. That was where I fell in love with emergency and critical care. And from there, I applied for critical care residencies and I matched at NC State. So moved to Raleigh for three years. And really, that was where I developed my love and passion for teaching and research and working in an academic environment. And so it was Again, a no-brainer for me. I went into an academic role at the Ontario Vet College, and I was there for five years. All those years of working and training and, and preparing myself for veterinary practice did not really prepare me for life as a working criticalist. And I say that because I didn't know it at the time, but it wasn't long into my job at the Ontario Vet College that I started to have signs of burnout. And I can look back on it now and see that that was happening. But at the time, it just felt like a non-sustainable job for me. It felt exhausting. I felt like I was working all the time. You know, I was spending a lot of time on call, all these wonderful things that we love about critical care and at the same time are so tiring and difficult to tend with, especially when we aren't taking care of ourselves or, you know, we don't have the language and wherewithal to know when we're feeling burnt out. So I ended up leaving that role and moving back 
uh, out to this part of the country. So back to closer to my family here in Alberta, thinking that I would have this amazing, super balanced life and just continue to do work as a criticalist and a speaker. And I just continued on this cycle of workaholism and perfectionism and, and burnout. And that's kind of when I hit the wall and I knew that this wasn't the job. It wasn't a situation that this was me and there were some things I needed to change. And so you mentioned, you know, that I'm a yoga teacher. I, by, through a, a crazy series of events, I ended up getting my yoga teacher training and really diving deeply into mindfulness and meditation and just learning about taking care of myself, learning more about mental health, uh, learning more about my mental health and what I need to stay healthy and stay well and, you know, stay balanced, I guess, so to speak, in, in what can be a very taxing profession. And along my journey, never having planned to, to be where I am now, I just, I started feeling this calling to share this information with others in our profession. You know, I think at the time we were really starting to talk about mental health and wellness in the profession. And I thought, you know, this is information that I wish I had known 10 years ago that I wish someone had taught me that really could have changed the trajectory of my life. And so I started to offer that as a speaker, you know, to talk about these subjects. I started digging into some of the veterinary research and doing some veterinary research in the space of well-being. It's just kind of taken over. You know, I, I do still practice as a teleconsultant criticalist and occasionally in clinical practice here in Calgary. But for the most part, well-being advocacy, coaching, education, this is what I do. And I absolutely love it. That's amazing. I mean, love it. Yeah, talk about like, right, taking kind of the reins of your own life and having to probably face a pretty tough kind of professional demons, let's call it right, and figure out what was kind of the best mm -hmm. path for you. Um, we also like to know before we dive into all of the stuff you just said, because we're going to dig in and unpack all of that. We always like to know if you have kind of a recent or a favorite book, podcast, CE course, something like that, that has really left a lasting effect on you, usually kind of in the leadership realm, but feel free to kind of give us anything our, our listeners eat this stuff up. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I am all about, uh, you know, self-development in the leadership realm because it's, it all overlaps, right? So my passion for well-being translates to well-being as a leader. And, you know, so much of that information is around our self-awareness, our emotional intelligence, how we communicate with others, you know, and how we take care of ourselves so that as a leader, we can take care of our team. So Gosh, you know, in the leadership space, I have to say that my favorite book is probably Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. I've read Yay! it a couple of times. I yeah. love you already. Figured. I thought there's no way that you and your That's audience. That's a favorite of the pod for yes, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just love it. You know, I was just chatting with someone yesterday about the engaged feedback checklist, you know, as a leader and just, again, checking yourself before you're, you know, offering that feedback to your team. I mean, there's just so many things. And again, I think we think, oh, that's, you know, leadership stuff and that it's separate from wellness, but it's so intermingled. And yeah, so that's my long winded answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And I will tell you, like, I, I'm diving into that book yet again with another one of my leadership teams. And I ended up taking something away from that book again. Like, I swear, it's like every time I read that book, I take something else away, right? So I'm like, it's that one about, you know, I think it's in her intro even that talks about, I'm only making space for people that are going to be honest and transparent with me. And I like just texted to a girlfriend of mine, Vivian, and I was like, you are this person for me. And so here, I'm going to remind you about this is what I need from you on a regular basis. I just love that book because you're right when you say leadership versus wellness, mental health, wellness, and, and, and just well-being, but those do integrate. They overlap because you can't have one with, without the other. And, and so, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I love her work too. So fantastic. You talked about recognizing when you were in practice, how there was this, this gap in education and being the self-aware and, and, you know, mental health and well-being advocate. So let's dive into that. Let's talk about where did you identify that this was a problem, either within yourself, within a team that you're working with? Where did you say, holy shit, this is, a, this is an issue? Like, ta-da, I have diagnosed this today. <laughs> and, and how do you go from saying it's here and this is what happened that made me see it? And then now all of a sudden, like, 
you aren't really practicing veterinary medicine all that much anymore. And now you're leading the change in educating our, our profession. So let's dive into that. Where do we have this aha moment? So it's funny, you, you call it like an aha moment, like as if I suddenly came to this realization, Andrea, but honestly, it, it took a lot of people sort of, you know, like shaking me a little bit to, to really come to that. So I wish I could say that I was like, oh, you know, like this is it. But, you know, when I was considering whether to stay or leave in my role at the Ontario Vet College, it was my naturopath that sort of said to me, like, when is enough enough? When are you going to realize that you know, you only have one life and and this is your health and this isn't sustainable what you're doing. And I sort of pushed it off for a while. And then I finally decided, you know, what? I want to be closer to my family anyways. And I made all these excuses and wasn't still even ready to see, you know, the patterns and the problems that I was experiencing. And then, like I say, moved back home, um, started to delve into life as a, as a solopreneur. So working on my own, not, not employed by any company or anything like that. And then fell into those same patterns. It was actually, believe it or not, it was a, it was a bad car accident that I was in that like literally and metaphorically kind of shook me to my senses. And I was rushing around. I had just come back from a speaking engagement and I was planning to go on the next speaking engagement, but I had some locum shifts coming up. And anyways, I was doing what many of us do, which is 50 things and yeah, all the things. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I wasn't being mindful. I wasn't in the present moment. The accident was not my fault, but I can't help but feel that if I had been a little bit more present, perhaps it could have been, been avoided. That really, first of all, it was like a physical stop to my life because I had to take a bit of time off to rehabilitate my body. Um, it was also, you know, an opportunity for me to kind of look at what I was doing and where things were going. And I, I ended up through a series of events using some of the money that I received from the settlement on my car, which was totaled and everything else to do my yoga teacher training. And I ended up doing a 30 day, you know, immersive 200 hour yoga teacher training. And that time was fully time off work to really look at myself and to do, you know, some reading and some reflection and various other things. I guess that was kind of the aha time period. I don't know if it was a moment in time, but it was definitely during that time where I had so much time to slow down and reflect and think and look at some of the changes that I had made up to that point, what was working, what wasn't, what I wanted to continue to change. And then in the process of, you know, further educating myself and integrating some of those changes, when I started to see the benefits that were coming from that, I started to think, okay, like, I think this is the path I'm meant to go down. And so that was when, when I really started exploring as you said, being more of an educator and an inspiration to others in the field of well-being advocacy and understanding. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I can just picture the whole time you're telling me that, like there's this old movie and, and I can't remember which one it is, but I think it's like Clark Gable and he grabs Mae West and he's like shaking her by the shoulders and he's like smacks her across the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where he's like, yeah. listen, woman. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I feel like that same thing that sometimes <laughs> life just has to shake us by the shoulders and smack right. us in the face a few times. And whether that's the course of a couple months over some intense, you know, with self-reflection or if it's a car accident or if it's just one yeah. day you wake up and you're like, what the hell's going on with me? Right. You know, I think life has to do that sometimes. And we're yeah. like, smack, oh smack, gosh. smack. <laughs> right. So how, how do you, Marie, kind of promote your message? How do you convince veterinary team members about the importance of self-care in a profession, which is really a culture of self-sacrifice? We're giving um, um, ourselves and our time for others, i.e. our patients and our and the owners. It's challenging and and not everyone, I'll be honest, is ready to hear that message or ready to really take it in and and take responsibility. You know, I think it's funny. I was just thinking about this the other day. In fact, I I wrote a a post-it note on my desk. I'm looking at it right now that says, are we getting too attached to our suffering in vet med? I do think that there is this, I don't want to call it like a pervasive victim mentality, but I do think there is the sense of you know, our profession is so hard. Our work is so hard and that's just what we do. And so my life is just going to be hard. And and it's sort of like a surrendering to it and attaching to it and unwillingness to take responsibility for that, which we have control over. We spoke earlier about Brene Brown and vulnerability. I think one of the biggest tools that I use very often to connect with others is to be vulnerable in sharing my story and not to say at all that like, oh, I had this awful 
burnout episode. And then I had this accident and now I have it all figured out and just do what I do and you'll be fine. But to share that I'm on this journey too, and I've done many things and acquired some knowledge and and put some strategies and tools into place that have definitely helped me. I'm a constant work in progress. So I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still making changes. And I'm doing that because I want to focus on what I have control over. I want to take charge of my life. I'm not willing to just sit back and accept the status quo and just say, well, I guess this is just the life I have as a veterinarian and veterinary medicine. And and so it is. But to say, yes, practice is challenging. And yes, our jobs are really hard. And yes, our clients can be giant pains in the butts. And despite all of that, here's what I can do to take care of myself. Here's the boundaries I can set. Here's the ways in which I can care for myself to continue to thrive in this profession that, you know, most of us love very, very much. Yeah, I agree, Dr. Ryan. A couple of things I would say to that is, you know, our other professions, and, you know, we always talk about like the human side, do they experience that same type of, of I'll, I'll say fatigue and mental health struggle? And they've, or, they've acknowledged this, they, they know it, they say it, they, they got through COVID too. And what type of tools then do they already have in place? Like we're not the only profession that struggles with this, but I think where we're struggling in the veterinary profession is this the first time we've actually talked about it. This is the first time where we've acknowledged it and been honest and transparent and all the different things that we're, we're learning how to be as a profession. Um, and maybe this is the first time we've really struggled with it through COVID, right? COVID, exas- it was there, definitely underlying, but I think COVID exasperated it. And so this is the first time maybe that we really have shined the light on that dark, ugly corner of our profession, right? So we're learning, like you said, learn in, learn in progress. We're learning how to not only talk about it, to be comfortable and uncomfortable talking about it, right? Stretch through it. And I think also is understanding what some of those tools are, what you're saying. I've, I've got some tools in place and, and I would challenge you to say, are boundaries one of them? We're shitty at boundaries. Oh, dear Lord. We, <laughs> <laughs> right. We don't even like, those are like squiggly erasable lines, right? That are not clear. So do ra- boundaries play a role in that? Are they a tool that you use to help either prevent or mitigate some of that burnout and fatigue and not just you, but you know, what, what are some of the tools that you found you see personally, but are there other tools then that you've heard of the other people are able to use? Somebody says journaling. I hate journaling. I suck at journaling. It's not for me, but it is a tool, right? For someone else. So can you talk to us either about boundaries or some other tools that you mentioned that help you or have heard of that help others? Yeah, I would love to. And that's, that's a, it's a great, it's a great segue into the topic of boundaries because you hit the nail on the head. I mean, yes, we, (laughs) most of us, I hate to, I hate to say the royal we, yeah, we all suck. We're all horrible at boundaries, but the truth is, and I think we in the profession, like people acknowledge this, you know, I'm the first one to put my hand up to and say that it has taken me years to have stronger, more healthy boundaries. And absolutely unhealthy boundaries, we know contribute to burnout. I mean, and this is definitely an area in which our human healthcare colleagues are much, much stronger. I mean, how many of us would ever, you know, be connected to one of our physicians on Facebook or message our text message, our you know, right. can you imagine text, text messaging your pediatrician and being like, oh, I don't know, there's a bump. What do I do? <laughs> exactly. Or I have a physician down the street knocking on their door and saying, you know, my daughter has X, Y, Z going on. Would you mind taking a look? I mean, it's just not, it's just not even remotely realistic. And so, yeah, so definitely that's often a foundational starting point that I try to, you know, help and coach people on is looking at our boundaries. And that's not just to say boundaries with our clients, but it's also boundaries with our team members, you know, not always feeling like you are the one that has to step up and take all the extra shifts when you don't really want to. I mean, it's one thing if you feel great to do that. And it's a whole other thing if you feel resentful and exhausted, you know, not just boundaries with the people that we work with, but the other people in our life. And even boundaries with ourselves. Like I think about boundaries around my use of technology or the time. How how am I spending my time? When am I going to sleep? How am I taking care of myself? You know, we all want to really take time to think about these needs and these non-negotiables in our lives so that we can show up 
to these amazing jobs that we have as the best version of ourselves. So boundaries are an awesome place to start. Along the same lines as boundaries, I also talk a lot about work-life separation, which is a form of a boundary. We all, not just we in the veterinary profession, but any care provider needs time in their day or in their week that they are not caring for someone else, that they have a bit of a separation from that or they're not thinking about their caregiving role. You know, whether you have your phone on do not disturb at the end of the day, if you're not on call, whether you get a point of not checking work email on the weekends or outside of work hours, not coming into work on your days off when you really don't have to be there. All of these things are strategies whereby we are giving ourselves that time and space to be in our lives, not within our veterinary role, but to be in our lives as mothers, partners, friends, whatever brothers, sibling, but whatever it is, you know, whatever, whoever you are, right. whatever you yeah. do outside of your work role, how can you nurture that as well? Hmm. Yeah. So I think I totally agree with all of that. Totally right on. And this podcast is, I shouldn't say focused on, but we try to really work through and empower managers and, and owners. We have a smaller group of owner listeners, but many manager listeners. And so when I think about when you describe boundaries, I almost think about a group of people who just can't have any, which is manager owner. And I say that can't, meaning that's how I see it. I'd love for your thoughts on what kinds of boundaries can managers and owners have. I think, you know, certainly owners and managers are beneficiaries of the fruits of the labor, the profits, things like that. But they're also human beings, right? And managers are sometimes subject to and somewhat beholden to the systems of the organization, whether it's a single doctor practice or a 50 doctor practice. Um, But owners are sometimes too, right? Like the government tells them they have to shut the hospital down, like they can't not do that. So how do you do you work with any veterinary owners and probably mostly DBMs, but also managers? And how do you frame having boundaries for them? And what kinds of boundaries could they have? I do. And oh my goodness, Dave, this is such a good question. And I'm so glad that you asked because I do work with owners, hospital owners and practice managers or hospital managers. I work with them specifically within my workplace well-being program, but also just as a coach for those who are struggling to set boundaries. And it is so interesting to speak to these individuals who are so passionate about their work in, you know, caring for their teams, leading their teams, being there for their teams, really at a whim, you know, whenever they might need something. And doing all of that while also taking care of themselves. I face the same resistance that you are feeling, you know, when I say that you need these boundaries and you need the self-care in the context of being a leader and being an owner or manager. And that is because once again, if you are not carving out that time and space for yourself, it will lead to that frustration, resentment, anger, or all of the above, or just exhaustion because you are spreading yourself so thin. What I share with owners, especially is, you know, to kind of think outside the box in terms of how they can distribute that responsibility. So whether the owner being, you know, the ultimate go-to person for, you know, struggles or issues within the practice, whether they share that burden, you know, with the practice manager or with someone else within the practice so that that can be sort of a rotating go-to role. Obviously, there's going to be situations where it is the owner that needs to be present for that. But, you know, as much as we can to share that load, even, you know, I've connected with practice owners who really, you know, align themselves with other practices in their area, whereby let's say there was an emergency and they had to close the practice for one day, that there's this knowingness that they would, that would be their go-to practice that they would divert their cases to. So, forming those connections, feeling like as much as you might be a solo business owner or solo practice owner, that you are not the only one shouldering the load. And then for the practice owners and managers who I speak to that are like, I'm on call 24 seven. Like if someone's sick, they call me. If someone needs this, they call me. Like I am the go-to person. And it's simply not realistic to think you can be the go-to person 24 seven, 365. It's just not. And I can promise, and I've seen this, I've seen this in practice managers who've ended up having to take leave of absences for health-related reasons because they've put themselves into that position where they feel like they don't have permission to step away Uh at all. Yep, yep. So again, whether you are shouldering the load with someone else, whether you have an assistant practice manager that you can train to be present on the moments or days where you need to relieve yourself and, and take a break. Also, what's very important is that to recognize is that a boundary is not just like a yes or no, like 
no, I'm not answering any emails and no, you cannot call me. It may just be a structure of communication so that it's clear to your team members about when it's appropriate to reach out to you and how it's appropriate to reach out with you. So for example, in an emergency situation, it's always important to call. Don't send emergency questions via email because then I feel like I have to be in my inbox all the time. So having kind of a structured communication strategy laid out where it's emergencies, phone call only, where be it's maybe an illness that's a same day illness, that's phone call only so that you're not getting text messages at two o'clock in the morning. I can't show up to my shift. You know, this is the thing I often hear as well from, from practice managers and the chain of communication, what's appropriate for phone calls, texting, emails, and what sort of responses they can expect to those communications. So again, whether it's text message and that that is only checked until 10 o'clock at night. And after 10 o'clock at night, I'm not checking my phone again until six o'clock in the morning, you know, unless you phone me, just being very clear so that even though they might be available literally 24 seven, there are still some boundaries within that availability that feel comfortable. So again, that a person is not feeling resentful that they are literally tied to their phones and their email 24 seven, 365. Yeah, I agree. And I, I know that there are plenty of my colleagues that are managers. In fact, I was just on vacation a couple of weeks ago with one of um, a colleague of mine. She's a manager and a bunch of us went on vacation and the phones went down at the practice and they all got transferred to her cell phone and we were on a flight. And so she gets off the phone and she's like, crap, I have all these messages and now her phone's ringing, you know? So she just called and was, you know, obviously the cell phone of somebody and was like, get it transferred to the practice owner. And so there's that shared responsibility where normally it's okay that they shift to my cell phone, but I'm on vacation. I'm going to set this boundary. And now that boundary shifted right to the practice owner. And so there's lots of things that we can do when I identify what these boundaries are that says only call me. If there is, if, if you're calling out for your shift, that could be that they call the hospital iPhone and that iPhone transfers to different people throughout that, you know, week or, or month or something like that, where you can shift that boundary at certain periods of time where you can still check out and step away from the practice and not feel the guilt. Because I think we often as managers feel guilty when we're not available. And so we talk about work-life balance, but we also talk about work-life guilt. I'm not going to feel guilty if I'm not able to be reached because it's not my turn. It's your turn to have the hospital cell phone where everybody's calling out sick or the help the phones get transferred to my cell phone after hours. Like that's not my you know, I set that boundary. That's not my boundary this time. It's it's their boundary. And so yeah. I do think that there's things that you can do to help set up those boundaries because right. what gets tied to that is the stress, the guilt, the anxiety, mm-hmm. you right. know? And so when we can identify that this causes me anxiety, I mm-hmm. feel work guilt. If I'm not there, then from, from the second the practice is open until the second the practice is closed. So for me, that's my work guilt. And so right. being transparent with your co-partner, right? The owner, Mm -hmm. the supervisors, Mm -hmm. your leadership team, whoever that is, and being able to say like, this is where my work guilt comes in. And so Mm -hmm. I want to be guilt-free. And in order to do that, can you share this burden with me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, right. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, guilt is certainly not, I mean, I almost say it's not healthy. I'm not a doctor, but I assume it's not great for your health. It's kind of like a negative emotion, but I also, Andrea, think that we also just don't do a great job of making our darn team solve their own damn problems. Like Ain't that the truth. Listen, we all, <laughs> so Marie and I work in critical care. I mean, you've, you've worked in emergency. So at two in the morning, you know, if I've worked from two to midnight or whatever the heck it was, and somebody calls out, there should just be a process that the team on the floor can do. They don't need to call me because I physically can't help them. And I think some, we're getting better at that now, but I think that my idea, I think we still have this idea, right, of leadership where if I'm not in the building, things aren't happening and I'm not important when, you know, some of the best leadership gurus say, if you can walk out of the building and it runs by itself, you're the best leader, right? So we're not thinking in that way. So I I definitely see it from both sides. I think that part of the way you can solve the work guilt is, as you said, like, don't feel guilty because, I mean, we've all had that call when you've woken up at a sleep and it's, oh my God, why weren't you here or whatever? And you have to like not gut yourself, right? Because you're like, well, I wasn't there. That's the reality. So we work through it. But on the other side of that, how do you build systems where you build a resilient team that like, it doesn't mean that the incident's not going to happen. We're going to have a fire in the dryer. We're going to have a crazy client up front. We're going to have all these things that are actually 
I hate to say it, business as usual, right? Like, but it happens. <laughs> Let's have systems that we can work through so that the team can just not only solve the issue based on, say, some sort of process, but also just be freaking empowered to do what they think is right in the moment. Like, if there isn't an answer, call the police, give the discount, do the thing that you think is the best thing. And then the manager comes the next right. day and frankly cleans up the mess, right? Yeah. But that's okay because we're refreshed, we're showered, we're, you know, new clothes and we're there and we're ready to go. You know, how many of those things are like 911, they have to be answered today? Oh, like right? How many of those Most things of are true emergencies, yeah. right? They're yeah. not. So why no, are we I like always, all of a yeah. sudden dealing with this client refund yeah. when, seriously, I was yeah. on vacation, yeah. I was sick, I was whatever, yeah. like that can wait. Like, yeah. what I the hell? Why, why is this staff. urgency? I try to trip them up and I say, okay, give me a scenario where, you know, it, it's an absolute emergency that I would need to be here. And we kind of work through it. And they give all the usual ones. And then they get some real weird ones, right? And obviously we deal with this, but theft or, or some crazy person or whatever. And I say, no, like, I'm not trained to deal with that. You call 911. They say the building's right. on fire. Yeah. And I say, don't Building call me, Good. call 911. Call the fire department. So the most what extreme, am I going to do about it? Right. The most extreme <laughs> emergency you could think of, God forbid, knock on wood, it never happens, but a fire in the hospital. Do not call me call yeah, 911 right. and get out of the building, you know? So like you can, <laughs> if you work backwards from what would literally be a life-threatening emergency, then you can get the teams to say, oh, we're out of a controlled drug. Like there are other things we can do besides call David. There's things we can do if we're, yeah. you know, out of a prescription. If, as you said, there, there's a, a client that's super upset about medication and is yelling and screaming and just wants to take their dog, send the dog out the door, put the file on my desk, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Right. And so you end up whittling down those things that have to be dealt with 24 seven. And you end up with a somewhat more sustainable career, right? Because you can actually step out. And and as Dr. Murray, you talked about what you do after you go home from work. So yeah, fair enough. Yeah, right. Recharge. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about, Dr. Murray, you've mentioned how you work with teams and you work with owners. So let's talk a little bit about the impact on the industry that you want to have, the impact of how you want to, and I would just say like for, for generic reasons, like make our mental health better in our profession. Mm. So let's talk about that. And then how are you going to accomplish some of that? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for asking. So gosh, what do I hope to see, you know, in our amazing space of veterinary medicine, definitely an openness to talking about mental health and wellness and self-responsibility to what we can do to make things better. I think rather than a surrendering to, well, we just know that we have a lot of psychological distress in our profession. And we know that, you know, our mental health is poor and, and all of these things. I think we really want to get ourselves to a place of moving forward from that and recognizing, Andrea, you alluded to this earlier, where you're like, we are not the only profession that has challenges. And I don't say that to belittle our experience in veterinary medicine. Veterinary medicine has some extraordinary and unique challenges that other professions do not experience. We euthanize, you know, we have the option to euthanize our patients. We're a fee-for-service health provider. We, uh, many of our patients are not insured. Most of our patients are not insured. You know, like there's a lot of challenges that we experience. You know, those challenges are changing and growing all the time. And we still want to do what we can to make sure that we can, you know, foster good mental health and well-being and sustain ourselves in our careers. So, you know, I would say from a, a workplace perspective, you know, when I think of your audience and I think of the owners and managers that are out there, obviously taking steps to make sure that you yourself are taking care of yourself for all the reasons that we talked about so that you can show up as the best version of yourself you know, Andrea, when you talk about guilt and having this guilt of taking a vacation and not being available and this, that, and the other, when I'm coaching the, you know, the individuals who I work with and they're coming to me and saying like, how do you make this guilt go away? Like I'm all about the boundaries, but I'm not about this guilt. First yeah. of all, the guilt is, is a sign that you are setting boundaries, which, you know, high five to you, that's step number one. Yeah. And secondly, what you want to do is you just want to recognize that this guilt is a part of this. And I'm going to set that guilt to the side, knowing that this vacation, this night off from being on call, you know, this boundary that I'm setting, I know that this is going to serve me in the long term because I'm going to show up tomorrow, the better version of myself than I would if I gave into this, because then tomorrow I'm going to show up tired, frustrated, resentful. I might make a mistake. I might yell at one of my team members not showing up as the best version of myself. And to David's point, you're also empowering your team. So this is good for your team as well. 
So along those lines, first and foremost, taking care of yourself. Secondly, is how do we create a team environment where mental health is just normal. This is just what we talk about, right? We check in with our with our team members. It's not this taboo topic yeah, of right. don't don't right. don't ask them about their mental <laughs> right. health because right. that. we're not allowed yeah. to do that. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of owners and managers say that to me, but they're like, but Dr. Yeah. Marie, like we we can't ask them about their anxiety. Right. And I'm like, but have they told you that they live with generalized anxiety disorder? Because that would be like me telling you I have diabetes and I need to go do my insulin injections. If that's the case, and that is open information between the two of you that has been shared, you can 100% say to them, how's your anxiety been these days? How are you managing with your anxiety? How How is your mental health going? Like these are normal, acceptable, and okay questions. Of course, if this wasn't something that was shared amongst the whole team, you're not going to ask them about their anxiety in the middle of a team meeting. But when you are having those one-on-one connections with your team members, it's okay to ask them how they're doing, how they're yeah. feeling, and not just that superficial, you good? Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm good. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Or yeah. sweep it under the rug or, you know, yeah. let it be an right. abscess that right. we know is going <laughs> to. <laughs> right. Uh, right. <laughs> 100%. You know, and there's there's so many ways that leaders and owners can take steps to make sure that we are reducing the stigma around talking about our mental health or around taking time for ourselves or any of these other things. And Mm -hmm. honestly, it does start with that openness to conversation. It also includes educating ourselves. So taking a mental health first aid program or doing, you know, a, a workplace mental health training program whereby you can learn, you know, learn more about what, what are some of the challenges that we face? What are some of the nuances of some of these mental health problems and how do they impact team members in the workplace? How can we accommodate team members that have certain mental health challenges or whatever it might be? How do we talk about it in a way that isn't stigmatizing? There's so many ways that we can learn and, you know, communicate so that it, it this, this just becomes normal. And we sure. find ourselves in a place where we're open about it. We talk about it and we support each other. And mm-hmm. we do that without judgment. We do it without criticism and, you know, for me, I guess that's that's ultimately at the end of the day what I want to see. I want to see us mm. working with an openness around mental health. And hopefully this is a whole other topic, but, you know, working in environments that are conducive to mental health. So mm-hmm. psychologically safe environments where we're not exposed to psychological harm in the workplace. Mm. Here, here, we both yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cheers. Yep. So I feel like we we kind of started in the middle and almost with the end in mind, which I love doing when I strategize. I want to start at the beginning. What, so, and, and you can kind of riff on this or, or take this where you need to, but if we start with your lived experience of finally getting to a sense of understanding you were in a burnout process, what is burnout, for, first of all, and, we, and maybe a little bit of a kind of a separation from compassion fatigue, and a little bit about how, because, you know, my understanding of burnout is it's, it's you know, basically issues or frustrations. I mean, all these things that arise within the workplace. So how does a workplace contribute to that? And then how do you work through some of these things, you know, or, or what are some tools to kind of get us to where we were just talking about being in the middle where we can have psychologically safe environments mm-hmm. and have discussions around asking people open-ended questions around how they are mentally and physically doing mm-hmm. because uh, having done some compassion fatigue and Andrea's done some training too, you know, one of the things that I learned in the training, which is kind of weird, we never thought about it in this way, but it's true, is there will always be more of them than us, right? There will always be more patients, more owners than there is a veterinarian or a manager, more employees than, you know, 10 employees to one manager, 50 pets to one vet. And so you're always working in that environment if there's always more. So mm-hmm. you kind of almost have a workplace that by definition is going to burn you out, right? Versus, mm-hmm. and I have no offense mm-hmm. meant to an accountant, but an accountant could work one tax return at a time, right? I mean, yes, they multitask and I'm joking, but you know, the idea that they could process something and then process the next thing because lives are not at stake, right? So like that's yeah. the difference. So anyway, I'm just yeah. curious. So a little bit frame what like burnout is for our yeah. team or for our listeners. And then how do you work with it through it? And how does it like, how do you apply that to that med? 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, burnout, you alluded to it perfectly. It's it's this, you know, unrelenting workplace stressors, essentially. And, you know, those workplace stressors can be as a result of systems or our environment. So that can be our workload or our caseload. It can be insufficient resources at work, whether that's not enough team members, not enough technology, not enough equipment, whatever it might be. There's many, many other factors as well. You know, workplace toxicity, believe it or not, is also a big contributor to burnout, unresolved conflict, which contributes to toxicity (laughs) in and of itself as well. Even values incongruence. So working in a workplace where my values just don't align with the values of the leadership or the organization can also lead to burnout. So many, many different things that we think of in that context. Burnout, although we do think of it as a workplace concern also um, to some degree is a little bit of our responsibility as well. Now, when we look at the different factors by far and away, the systems and the environment contribute more to burnout than an individual's own decisions and so on. And at the end of the day, I still want to focus on what an individual has control over. So that might mean being mindful of the number of shifts that we're taking on or the length of our shifts or our caregiving duties outside of our work shifts whether or not we're engaging in self-care. So am I taking a break at work? Those types of things. Of course, again, the environment and the culture is going to determine whether or not a person feels safe or that it's okay to take a break at work. So these factors are all intermingled, but there's many, many contributions to burnout. Ultimately, burnout culminates in one of three symptoms. So a person doesn't need to have all three to have burnout, but we typically think of them as cynicism. So when you start to feel, you know, this sort of cynical sense towards your clients and your patients and your team members, uh, emotional exhaustion, which is where you feel just completely depleted, especially when it comes to any sort of emotional demands that you might have within the job. And then the third is a low sense of personal accomplishment, where even though things, you know, might be going well on the job, like you're saving animals and you're, you know, figuring out new things, you're helping your team members, that it's just kind of like a whatever, who really cares, that doesn't even matter anyways. Some people can feel just one of those different symptoms and be experiencing burnout. Some people feel all three. In veterinary medicine, we tend to see much higher rates of emotional exhaustion and cynicism. And for the most part, most veterinary team members are still feeling a pretty good sense of personal accomplishment. They do still feel like they're helping people on the job. Yeah, the intrinsic rewards, the warm fuzzies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, so at the end of the day, when we think about all those things, you know, what we can do as leaders and managers to help, I mean, a lot of it is just looking at those factors, those environmental factors and making things more amenable to the people that were on our team who we're working with. And so that might mean making sure that people's workload is reasonable. Now, I know this is challenging because the caseload for many practices has exploded over the last few years. I think it seems to be settling in some areas. And in addition to that, many people's personnel has dropped. And so we have this imbalance in, you know, demand versus supply and how we can meet that. But that might mean that a practice manager has to make adjustments in terms of, you know, what hours is the hospital open? How many cases are being seen versus being diverted? You know, those types of situations. And then hopefully taking as many steps as possible to make the workday and the workload as easy as possible. So whether that's, you know, scribe software or human scribes that are helping, making things more efficient, getting rid of some of the subtle medical record nuances that aren't really actually needed, you know, streamlining things as much as possible, allowing team members to delegate some of the tasks that they really don't need to be doing that someone else could be doing. Lots and lots of different things, but You know, when we look at the main factors, it's really, again, this sense of workload, this sense of control over the work that we do. And one other thing that I forgot to mention in terms of, you know, what really contributes to burnout across all sectors, but we definitely see this in veterinary medicine, especially felt by our vet techs and nurses, is a sense of not feeling appreciated not feeling recognized for the work that a person is doing. So I'm not saying that this responsibility falls solely onto that of practice managers and owners, but I think they are the best leaders in this way to really demonstrate that we we foster a culture of appreciation and acknowledgement. When I see you doing something well, I'm going to acknowledge that. I want to honor that. I want to reward you in some way. 
we've seen tremendous benefits in terms of buffering stress and burnout with that as well. I want to circle back, Dr. Marie, to something that you pointed out. That's a lot to unpack there. So I'm just going to pick one, (laughs) one little area there. And I think it resonated with me because as a manager, I have very often you know, people call me Mama Dre and my little baby chicks, you know, that follow in behind my little baby ducks that follow <laughs> behind, right? And I want to, I want to keep all my ducks in a line. It's a so, great visual. I love you know, it. We have that. Yeah. We have like that, that, especially being a mother, you know, I, I want to mother my employees and, and I'm the liaison between say the doctor and the client or this team member and the owner or whoever that may be. So I take charge of my employees and I want to make sure that I'm that nurturing, supporting leader that they need. What is it do they need to grow? Where, where is it that they're maybe stepping out of line? I need to help support them or give them something. And so I feel responsible often. I'm setting up an environment where they are not flourishing, where they are subject to burnout. And so when we talk about, when you say things like we need to be able to control their workload or, or help support them. So ultimately, is it my responsibility as the manager to help prevent my veterinary team from feeling some of these things? Or do I need to have like the, hey, I led the horse to water, can't make him drink, right? Like it's on your own to first of all say like, I'm struggling with this. I may see it. Is it okay for me to say, I think you are struggling with burnout right now? Whose responsibility is it there to point that out or to take charge of the situation and correct it and address it? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Such a great question. You answered my like verbal entourage of points with so many other points. With my verbal vomit? <laughs> <laughs> so the short answer, as much as I can make it succinct in response to what you just shared, and I 100% see and hear what you're saying with regards to like, oh my gosh, this is a huge pressure on me. You know, is this all on me to make sure that my employees have this incredible work experience and never get burnt out? And the bottom line is, is no, the responsibility does not all fall on you. The responsibility falls on all of us. And so we all play a role in whether or not we experience burnout. There are things from the the owners and the organization's level that they are responsible for, you know, in terms of the policies that are in place within the organization or the practice, you know, the culture that they have basically dictated from the top down, you know, in terms of do we have a culture of talking about mental health and wellness in the company, about putting our people first in terms of the decisions that we make rather than defaulting to the client is always right or the bottom line is money and that's what we keep in top of mind all the time. So there's that responsibility. Then, you know, for individuals like you who are in a practice management role, there's a responsibility on on your part as well. And you described a lot of it, like you really are on the front lines of what your team members are experiencing as the client facing individuals. And you might help buffer that sometimes by stepping in during challenging situations, which is amazing. And that is going to help, you know, reduce burnout and some, you know, when they are having to deal with a lot of those really difficult client situations. And at the same time, you know, there is a responsibility to look at what is their workload? Am I making sure that they have their basic needs met in terms of the number of team members per shift and the number of cases that they're seeing and the equipment that they have to to do what they need to do and to do their procedures and to take care of their patients and that sort of thing? You know, making decisions around what the schedule is going to be and what what the demands are going to be on the team. I think a lot of that falls on you. I think a big responsibility for managers as well, aside from the recognition and reward that we already talked about, is to also be a champion for conflict resolution, you know, and I'm not saying that you want to be the go-to person that everyone is sort of going to mom to say, mom, like they did this and I Mm -hmm. didn't like it and I need you to fix it. But for you to, to lead by example in showing, okay, well, I'm happy to help you mediate this. I'll be a mediator in this conversation, but this is ultimately your responsibility to resolve this conflict. So let's have a conversation, all of us together and see what we can do. But, you know, there's a lot of research in the veterinary space to demonstrate that unresolved conflict, broken communication, it all creates this toxic environment and that those yeah, who work in a toxic again. environment are more, yeah. more prone to burnout. And 
I do think that that some of that responsibility is on practice management. I see a lot of practice managers that just engage or allow this culture of triangulation where team member comes to them and they complain about another team member, but they don't want to go to the team member, you know, head on, they want you to deal with it. So you're kind of the go between and it's, it's just creating this culture of conflict avoidance and kind of tattletale culture. You know, there might be situations where it maybe is unsafe for that person to have a conversation one-on-one, but I hope that we can, as best as we can help empower our team members to be able to resolve that conflict on their own. And then at the end of the day, it's not just on you either. There is responsibility on the individual when it comes to burnout prevention. All the things I talked about before, you know, setting those boundaries, regulating our workload. Sometimes our managers don't know we're feeling exhausted. So it's up to us to say to them, hey, I think I need a day off or I think I need to cut back my schedule or my shifts have just gotten way too long. And I'm that I hit that 10 hour mark and I'm done. You know, I think we need to shorten it up from the 12 hours. You know, there is a personal responsibility there. And of course, I'm a huge advocate for open communication, for conflict resolution on the part of the individual. So I think empowering ourselves so that we have those tools so that we are not always feeling like we have to run to our manager to say, hey, so-and-so said something and I didn't like it. Can you talk to them? But that we are able to have those conversations ourselves. I want to be able to summarize that so I can relinquish some of my guilt, right? It's not... 100% my responsibility. It's not 100% my practice owner's quote fault. And it certainly is not on my team member. There's a we in this. I think the key is open communication. Always going to go back to open communication. If we're not in dialogue about it, if we're not normalizing it in our conversations, if we're not talking to our teams about it, if we're not having conversations about it, if we're not checking in with our team, if they're not checking in with us, if we're not asking and raising our hand, right? So everything comes back to have a conversation with somebody about something at some point in time. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) You summed it up beautifully. Sure. I wouldn't go with beautifully, but there's my recap of, right? You're off the hook, man. Not off the hook manager. You are, you know, it's it's a shared thing and don't feel guilt that I I feel like I I do hear managers tell me that it's my fault, if you will. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. ah, Uh, I agree. So here we are, I feel like full circle. We've talked, we've started in the middle around where we are. We then took a step back to say, what the heck is this thing that we were talking about? And now we're not at the end in terms of everything's fixed, but in at the end in terms of what do we do? What can, and and so again, we always direct this kind of towards managers and owners because that's our, our primary listener base. Dr. Marie, what can management do about burnout and compassion fatigue? Well, I think, you know, in light of everything we've talked about, I think taking a moment to really reflect on your current situation. I mean, what based on what I shared with regards to the symptoms of burnout and what we see among our team members, how do you feel about your team? How are they doing? Are they on the whole doing well or are they for the most part, or maybe for a number of your team members, are they experiencing burnout? To Andrea's point, if you're not sure, asking, having the conversation, asking those open-ended questions. I think it's important for us as managers and owners as well, anybody in a leadership role to reflect on ourselves. How are we doing? Are we feeling burnt out? Are we feeling, you know, overstretched and exhausted and maybe a bit cynical when it comes to our jobs and and our role in the practice based on the tools that I mentioned, you know, those boundaries, working on our communication skills, working on our conflict resolution, making sure that we have the resources to do the work that we need to do, setting those boundaries and having that work-life separation. All of those things are going to be things that are going to help us to not feel that burnout and to be able to support our teams even better. So in considering that and considering, you know, maybe even just one or two things that a person could do, hopefully sooner rather than later, you know, a low hanging fruit, so to speak. And maybe that's just having one conversation with one of your team members. Maybe it's deciding, you know what, I need to get a little bit clearer about our communication protocols in terms of when and why to contact me and and how to go about doing that. You know, I would settle on one thing that you want to do moving forward in order to enhance not just your team's mental health and well-being, but your mental health and well-being as well. And hopefully, again, this will help everyone on their path to avoiding burnout. Yeah, and I I think that 
it's like eating an elephant, right? How do we do that? One bite at a time. And so if we take one <laughs> actionable step, right, and say, okay, tomorrow when we get into practice, we're going to try this, right? I'm going to set a boundary and see how that works, right? When we had Miss, Missy Filarecki on the podcast, she talked about an EAP program that she uses, right? So I, I think we can say, like, what are you going to do tomorrow, right? So mm-hmm what one step, right? What one bite of that elephant are you going to say? I'm going to talk about it in my next team meeting. I'm going to have a mental health, maybe professional or, or a lunch and learn or something like that. Come in and do some team training, right? So what bite of the elephant are you going to take tomorrow to take that step forward? And then the next one after that, and the next one after that. So I love it. I can't get over this visual of eating an elephant. So <laughs> that's a great, that's a, you're making it definitely into bite size Bite-sized pieces. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Dr. Marie, if you could give one piece of advice to our listeners, what would that be? I think no matter the situation, you know, that you find yourself in to always focus on, you know, what you have control over in that situation. So, you know, we rarely, if ever, have control over another person and their behaviors and actions, but we have control over our own response. And so thinking about, you know, how do I want to respond to this? How do I want to move forward? And how can I do it in a way that is going to you know, serve everyone's best interests, especially from a mental health and wellness perspective. Yeah, I love that. I know Betsy Charles is a big advocate on that space between hearing something and our response. Mm-hmm. We have to take that space and and sometimes wait a minute because yeah. sometimes that space is reactive or whatever it may be. Take that minute, sit in that space and be okay with it. And sometimes that space is pretty shitty. And sometimes that space is angry. And sometimes that space is, you know, I always get that look on my face. Like, I can't believe you just said that to me. right now. Like, sometimes I need to pick up my chin and be like, Oh, don't show that face. Right. So, you know, sometimes that we got to take a minute, take a beat and be in that space before we respond and take action and, and, yeah. and recognize, you know, what impact are we having when we say something in the next mm. 30 seconds or three minutes or who knows how long, right? Yeah, I I appreciate that. that. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. I mean, I guess I would say it was my inability to recognize the first time that I was feeling burnt out. Tell me about your proudest moment. Passing my ACVEC boards. Why veterinary medicine? What do you just love about our profession? People and their pets. Self-care. How do you practice it? How do you decompress? Sleep, exercise, time in nature, meditation. How do you balance work and life? And do you experience any work guilt in that balance? Boundaries. And yes, I do feel guilty when I set them. What keeps you up at night? Things that stress you out or cause you anxiety? Worries that something might happen to my daughter. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? Getting to exercise before anybody else in the house is awake. What color best describes you and why? Pink, because it's energetic and bright. And if you could be any animal in the world, what would it be and why? A dog, because they're so well cared for, for the most part. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) Awesome. Dr. Marie, this has been amazing. Thank Thank you you so much for coming on the show. This is awesome. It's been lovely and wonderful. Thank Thank you so much for talking about your journey as well. Any of our listeners want to find out more about you or your services? um, How would they get a hold of you? What are your social handles? What's your website? Give us the deets. Well, thanks for asking. So people can visit my personal website, mariehollowaychuck.com. My email is info at mariehollowaychuck.com. And I am on social media. Instagram is at mariehollowaychuck. And LinkedIn and Facebook, it's at Dr. Marie Hollowaychuck. And I would just love for people to reach out and, and say hi. And I hope to connect with everyone again at some time. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Marie, for Thank coming you. on the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.